On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the stories of parents learning how to raise a child with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sanath Kumar Ramesh and Brittany Ratke, parents of rare disease kiddos who have very different situations. Sanath's son Raghav has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian-type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Brittany's daughter Everly has been diagnosed with SET-D5, a mutation that carries with it the potential for a range of complications and even other diagnoses. My name is Kevin Fryert. After 30 years doing research and development at Pfizer, I started Salem Oaks to help patients and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D. Our goal on Raising Rare is to help and lift up our listeners by sharing the unfolding stories of these two families. We also feature the stories of other rare disease families, clinicians, researchers, and industry leaders in the rare disease community. If you'd like to follow these parent stories, please subscribe to Raising Rare on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Raising Rare. Today we're going to be talking to Casey and Tim Wyman, a daughter and father pair um, who have two stories to tell about the same story. And I think it's going to be very interesting to hear how Casey's story comes out and how Tim's comes out and how they match. We'll, we'll leave you listeners to decide how that works. But Sonnet, before we get going too far, how's Raghav doing? Stable. Um, I think we re- recently found out that he gets allergies more often than we understood. Um, and so that's been helpful because sometimes his un- unexpected, unresolved cold um, actually are allergies. So something we learn every day. Something new every day, absolutely. We don't have Brittany on today, and I wanted to mention something about that. Um, she's gotten a new diagnosis for Everly, and they've had to take some time off. Too many things were coming at them at once. I think we can all relate to that. And she asked just to take some time off, and and this happened to be the interview where she won't be able to be here. So I'm going to play the role of Brittany today. I'll try to do well and, and ask the same kind of question she would. So Casey... Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself before we even get into what your diagnosis is? Yeah, so I am Casey. Um, I'm a 21-year-old college student at Oakland University. Um, My major is criminal justice. I'm hoping to do something with that. Um, I'll be going into my sophomore year um, this fall, so that will be exciting Um, I currently live in Farmington Hills in a one-bedroom apartment, Um, and I also work at a police department, and I also have my own little dog-sitting job. So just to give us some orientation, Farmington Hills is in what state? It's in Michigan. (laughs) Okay. What part of Michigan? Um, It's... 
So it's about 30 minutes from Detroit, Michigan. Okay. So kind of that uh, southeastern corner. How about you, Tim? Can you tell a little bit more about you and your family? Sure. Uh, my wife, Jen, and I are parents to uh, three kids. We have uh, two older boys, Matt, 29, Jack's 27. Casey, as you just heard, is age 21 with cystinosis. And uh, along with three dogs, we have raised our family in Bloomfield, Michigan, which, as Kevin, you mentioned, is uh, southeast Michigan, um, about 10, 20 miles uh, north of Detroit, I would say. And Casey's apartment is uh, 15, 20 minutes away from our home. That's great. Thanks for, for kind of giving us the feel for where you guys are and and how close you're living. So, Casey, tell us a little bit about your diagnosis and how it affects your life. It is a genetic disorder um, which affects my whole body, mostly my kidneys. Um, so I daily I have to take medications, I would say about 20 to 30 a day, um, anywhere from medications that help my cystinosis and then also anti-rejection medications. Um, I did get a kidney transplant, and my dad gave me his kidney in 2015. Um, so that was definitely one of the big parts of my life. Um, and I think cystinosis in general is, it's a diagnosis, but I don't make it a part of, I make it a part of who I am, but that's just a little tiny piece. Yeah, 20 meds a day, that sounds like a lot. And we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, what your dad has done for you in a little bit when we talk to him. Um, how old were you when you found out you had cystinosis? I was four years old. So you were someone who could understand things then and, and knew it was that something was going on. I mean, you probably weren't understanding all the science and medicine behind it, but you knew, gee, I've got something. How old are you now? Did you say? I am 21 years old right now. So we're going to hear about 17 years worth of experience with, with cystinosis. I, you mentioned that you take 20 meds a day. What is the treatment for cystinosis? And how does it make you feel? What are the good and the bad parts of it? Yeah, so there is a there are a couple medications. Um, the main one for cystinosis is called Cystagon. Um, I take that every eight hours. So it it depends on the day and how I'm feeling, but usually it doesn't really upset me too much. Um, but I could get anywhere from you know a headache from, or I could just throw up. Um, it just depends on the day how I'm feeling with the pills. Um, and then there's also, there's cystine, cystine drops. Um, they're eye drops, which I take, I try to take six to eight um, times in my eyes every day. Wow. So putting cystine directly in your eyes and that's, what happens if you don't do that? So over time, um, my light sensitivity would get really bad, and eventually um, I could go blind if I don't do the eye drops. 
So you must be pretty good at that. A lot of people have, you know, nervousness and anxiety putting something right in their eye. But if you're doing it so many times a day, it's probably something you do pretty easily, huh? Yes. <laughs> so how did doing all these treatments, how did it impact you as you were growing up and, and going through school? So you're in your second year of college now, but, but like through high school and middle school and all of that. Yeah, so I think um, it was never really too hard for me. Um, I think maybe the, the worst was middle school, um, just because with the cystagon, um, it tends to have a really strong odor. So after I take it, um, I would say after an hour or a couple hours, it tends to, I'm not sure how to really describe the smell um, because I can't smell it. So, but I know like when I used to take it, um, when I lived with my parents, my mom would be like, oh, like I smell your cystion today. Um, so I think it was most, most of the time it was just hard in middle school um, because kids would tend to smell my breath and they'd be like, oh, like it smells like kind of like rotten milk or rotten eggs. Um I only had to deal with that a couple times. So growing up and taking the medication, it wasn't really a huge, um, I guess it wasn't really a huge deal to me, but I know with other kids with cystinosis, um, they take a, there's another option for medication. So they take another medication and I know that they've had some struggles with that. Um, but I'd say my biggest one was in middle school a couple times, but other than that, not much. I think I can relate to you. I think a lot of us, the biggest struggles were in middle school um, when everybody started growing up and and looking at each other differently. Um, so I never thought of it that you wouldn't be able to smell that, even though when I spoke to you last time, you told us about this. I don't think you mentioned that you couldn't smell it. That's very interesting. So I wonder, you're... Your family's nice and honest with you and says, hey, we can smell your cystagon today. But did you have to like look for signals and stuff from your friends, whether they might have been smelling something? Um, I don't think so. I would. My mom, it's funny, actually, if you eat chocolate when you take it, it helps. I guess it just brings the odor down or it doesn't have an odor at all when you eat chocolate. So sometimes like in the morning before I went to school, my mom would give me a piece of chocolate to um, take with it. But I don't, I don't think so all the time. I would chew gum, um, but not really, no. Oh, wow. Interesting little strategies to deal with that. That's pretty cool. And so you said you're going to school for criminal justice and you're working in a police department. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, why did you get into that? Yeah, so I would say probably six months ago, um, I was scrolling on YouTube and I found this girl. She works in a juvenile center um, and she was just talking about her job, talking about everything she was doing. Um, and it really interested me. So I started talking to my dad's good friend um, who used to be a probation officer with juveniles. 
Um, So I started talking to him. I changed my major to criminal justice, and I took an intro to criminal justice class, and I found it super interesting, Um, and I applied to a couple police departments. I heard back from one, and I had to go through the interview, um, the psychological exam, drug test, physical Um, everything like that. So I think it was just seeing what people do on, you know, social media, and it got me interested. Um, But I work at Wixom Police Department, which is about 15 minutes from Farmington Hills. Um, And right now I'm a police service aide. So I'm like the first person you talk to when you walk into the police station. Um, I'm booking all of our prisoners that we get working for working under the officers um, and doing all of their like paperwork they need. Um, but yeah, it's very exciting. It sounds it. My wife is very much into watching these live crime shows. Um, so she'd probably love to talk to you. Like, what do you get to hear when you book those people when they come in? Um, because what you see on TV is she finds it entertaining. And uh, and it probably, you know, her curiosity would keep going. Uh, Tim, I find it fascinating um, uh, to to talk to you uh, because you've obviously raised uh, Casey and your other kids, um, especially Casey, through her entire life with a diagnosis that has, you know, had an impact um, on on everything that you guys do and everything that she does. Um, but I, I'm curious, what did you find the hardest um, or one of the hardest few things uh, after Casey got her diagnosis? Yeah, I think um, certainly just, you know, general uncertainty um, it was was very hard. And I hate to say in the, the beginning, when you get a diagnosis, um, you can't help but um, think about, you know, is my child going to die? And um, I was having a conversation with someone else. It's, I, I think it's just a, a stressor, if you will, that uh, whether it's conscious or subconscious, it's, it's, it's there. Um, you know, you, you worry about all of your children and then you have something uh, as a rare disease. And it, it, it certainly um, adds to the uncertainty. Yeah, that's an uncertainty that I guess never goes away. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, um, obviously it's a genetic disease. So, you know, this was from birth. Um, she was diagnosed at four years old, probably in hindsight, you know, around two, we looking backwards, we, we saw some things, if you will. Um, but um, finally, and fortunately, with a lot of rare diseases, you know, you, you go through a lot of tests and it's this big experiment, if you will. And um, there was a little bit of relief when we finally did get uh, an actual diagnosis. And um, I remember a, a, a young doctor actually saying um, something that has, has stuck with me. You know, he basically said, hey, you know, let's not sugarcoat this. You guys are in for a long, long road. But I've seen how you've interacted with your daughter in the hospital over this last week. And, and you guys got this. You know, you, you can do this. And it was it was that's a very positive 
way to deliver the yeah, message. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I wish he knew uh, how impactful uh, it, it was because it was, uh, it was the right message. Yeah, we talk a lot about the the diagnostic odyssey and also the uh, the key influential people during that time, uh, and and certainly for me personally, I've had doctors that have done um, a damage and good, uh, right? And you know, one of the doctors um, actually on on the on the day of my son's birth gave us a message that um, lowered my trust in the in in the doctors uh, in general because you know it was. A very stressful time uh, right after birth and and i made a, a few poor choices um in terms of my son's diagnostic odyssey that that delayed us by months um simply because this, the person that spoke to me didn't give me uh, uh the trust that i needed uh to make such a um, life or death call for my son and you know then i have had doctors that have been just just incredible allies right like um you know even when we get when we got terrible seizures, uh, doctors would stand by us. You know, would would understand what we we're going through. Would would help us walk through um, the process and and get out of it. Right, and that that you know, it's not just about the medical um, profession or the experience. It's about how you talk to the other person as a human. That matters a lot. With Casey's uh, pedi- uh, pediatric doctor, uh, Sonia Earls. Um, had no idea what cystinosis was, but ultimately was the you know one of the key behind the scenes. I remember saying, uh, "Go get a, a, an eye test because uh, this amino acid buildup in in the body shows up in the eyes, um, and you can see it much better than other other parts." And but she's just been um, a godsend. I mean, you know, she's still a friend today, and um, she was a. a just a huge advocate for for Casey and our family over the years. That's incredible. Um, well, that was what seventeen years ago, um, and the ecosystem and awareness around rare diseases wasn't as I'm assuming isn't as much as today. Uh, I'm curious to to understand how did you and your family, your wife, and your even your your your, your extended family take the news like what 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 um was their reactions um initially very scared i mean i i I remember uh, being petrified uh and fortunately sometimes the more you learn that can you know scare you even more but um as we got more information um i'd say our hope level you know kept increasing uh we started getting more comfortable uh, Casey had a G2 put in right away, and, and that was uh, something that helped our day-to-day. Um, Casey mentioned all these you know, medications. Imagine a four-year-old having to, to swallow 30 pills a day. Um, we were able to do that with a, a G-tube. Um, you know, fortunately, my, my wife, who's Casey's main uh, caregiver all this time, was a, a super, I'll say, leader of our, our household. And we had so much help, family, friends. Um, it really took a lot of us to, um, you know, to manage it. Yeah, it, it was about three or four years, I recall, Casey. And then you um, started uh, testing or trying out on the pills and uh, you were able to do that. And so we could have the, the G-tube. 
um, taken out. But, you know, we, we used to literally every night hook up fluids into the G-tube. And um, I think that really helped her, her health. That's amazing. I've always wondered um, when we got uh, a G-tube for my son if and when he would ever eventually grow out of it. Um, I don't. I now know he will not because of his other medical challenges. But um, it's great to know, Casey, that you've uh, grown out of it. It's amazing. We um, we just we support a group, Cystinosis Research Network, and uh, we just had a um, three day family conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, it's a, um, happens every two years. So. Um, I don't know. There, there are probably 350 people there and maybe, uh, I'm just guessing, 60, 70 uh, folks with cystinosis. And most do want to grow out of it. But I heard two things. I heard one, everyone who had it said it was, you know, so they were so glad that their their child got it early on. And then I just met a 16-year-old who, you know, the, the, she's not able to take pills. And it, it's a it's a way that, you know, that she can take pills and hopefully uh, maintain her health. Absolutely. I cannot imagine swallowing 20, 30 pills a day, um, especially not a very pleasant experience, but I think the G-tube makes it a whole lot easier. Yeah. And some of these pills, um, you know, are, 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 are quite large and, you know, I, Casey mentioned the the smell of the the cystagon, um, and I just think she's. I mean, I I admire her um, her, her I don't know perseverance. Her um, she knew I think at an early age that you know what taking pills it's it's non negotiable. Um, it's what keeps you healthy and alive, and I think she um, bought into that um, at a very young age. Fortunately. Uh, I'm curious how you know the, the the treatment landscape has changed for cystinosis since um, Casey got her diagnosis, uh, and especially curious when Casey first kind of got her treatments and and how she's personally benefited from the changing of the landscape too. Yeah, we're so there are. Uh, it's estimated about two thousand people worldwide have cystinosis, and about six hundred in the U.S. And we were talking about this over the last couple of days. I'll say how fortunate we feel that there are actually uh, four drugs in in this rare space. Um, she mentioned two of them for the uh, most of the organs. Um, I'd say mostly focusing on the kidneys, and then there's eye drops. But you know, as you guys know better than I do, a lot of rare diseases don't have any therapy, and and we've got we've got four. So. Uh, the cystinosis community is is very fortunate in that, and we're starting to he, uh, see studies um, that deal with stem cell, and way too early to be you know real excited about. But um, Casey actually spent a lot of time with a I think a 22 23 year old who's in that process right now, and is it's very promising. That's a, that's amazing. Even though it's a 600 person in the U.S. disease, I'm, I'm so glad there are four treatments that changes options for patients substantially. It, 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 it does, because it used to be without treatment, 
Um, kids, quite frankly, had a full uh, you know, kidney failure by the age of nine and had a very short life expectancy. And now if you're taking the Cystagon, Procispi, the two main medications, most likely kidney transplant is still in your future, but you push that out. And we're seeing kids, you know, have certainly their life expectancy has increased uh, tremendously. So that, that provides a lot of hope. Hope is what we need day in, day out. Uh, Tim, I guess as, as, as a veteran rare disease parent, um, what advice would you, would you give someone like me who's uh, still fairly new in this game? Yeah, that, that's, um, that's a, a tough one. I, and I wish I wasn't a veteran and I hope I, you know, in the future, I'm, I'm not a rare parent. Um, for, for us, um, some things I mentioned as non-negotiable taking meds, um, was, uh, my wife was fantastic with the tough love and this leadership because I could, I think kids take their cue from us uh, many, many times. And, and so we set the tone and, and I do think kids, um, see it, they follow it. And some things, uh, with medications are non-negotiable in our case, um, getting Casey, involved in um, the medications um, you know over over time for example it went from my wife doing all the ordering sorting you know uh, dispensing and then slowly we would have Casey get involved we'd order and she'd help you know put them in different uh, boxes for for the week uh, and then you know at some other point she went and she was ordering and now, um, you know, she she has to administer her own own meds. Um, so getting kids in, involved um, over different ages, I think, is important. Um, and for me, I I, I do think in, it, it's our attitude. I I had a chance to read a, a book, Man's Search for Meaning, many many years ago, and it's had a big impact on my life. And it, you know, it's a, a Holocaust survivor, and it's just this paradox of of facing the, the, the somewhat cruel reality and yet having hope for the future. And it's okay to have both of those somewhat competing thoughts. And, and that's had a, a big impact on how we approach, um, you know, Casey's rare disease and, and parenting, quite frankly. Thanks for that advice. Man's Search for Meaning is one of the most profound books I've read too. Um, I remember reading uh, that over actually last summer now, uh, and it 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 gave me a, a unique appreciation for life that I wish I had several years ago. Um, it made me less um, anxious. It made me less uh, uh, unhappy about my current situation, right? And I think you know, clinging on to hope um, was was not always very comfortable for me uh, because I wanted to act. I didn't want to just be hopeful. But I think um, after reading that book, I understood hope is a prerequisite for action. Um, and it is not a bad thing. It's a great thing to have. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm glad you um, found that book yeah, useful very, too. Very, I think um, like it's you just said, very um, impactful. And it's not, you know, parenting advice, but to the extent when you're in a, a in the rare community, hopefully you can truly find a community. Um, we find um, participating in this cystinosis research network. My wife and I both as board members, we help plan the family conference. 
and just being able to to share stories with other people. And, you know, I like to say um, each of our stories is clearly different, but we live in the same neighborhood. You know, you might have a bungalow, I might have a colonial house, but we're, we're clearly in the same community. And, you know, it's, it's, it's therapeutic being around people who, you know, get you and appreciate what, what you've gone through. And um, the, the fellowship is, is, is absolutely uh, needed. Yeah, quite often um, podcast recordings and the raising rare end up becoming a therapy session um, <laughs> because, you know, parents from the same neighborhood get together and uh, we, we just cannot stop talking. So, Tim, tell us about that story from your side. Well, first, we joke that when we started talking about transplant, we all agreed that it was my wife who was going to donate. <laughs> and then as we got you know closer, just like Casey said, it's like, well, it's not just the kidney itself we got to think about. We have to think about the recovery and, and who's best to care for Casey and, uh, you know, me even even perhaps. So. Um, I think like any parent, it was a very easy decision um, to go along with it. I was I was more concerned. I think I was 46, 45 or 46 at the time. And I didn't know if I was going to be, I hate to say, healthy enough. Um, and fortunately, went through the battery of tests and, and everything panned out and um you know, it was a great bonding experience with with Casey, and yet filled with a, a lot of um, uncertainty and and fear as well. As many great bonding experiences are, it's you know it's when you're in the face of some sort of adversity or uncertainty like that, that's when you you hold on to each other. Um, so it actually is a very special thing. I. When you guys first told me, I, I choked up because you sprung it on me at the end of our conversation. Like, oh, there's one other thing to tell you. Um, and it's, it's just amazing. You know, it's an amazing gift both ways to be able to say, I gave something to my kid that's given them new life. Um, it's just from, as a father, I, I would love to be able to say that. And I hope I have given them something. I wanted to ask, was it your right or your left kidney, Tim? Yes, my my right kidney. And I don't know if there's something like most doctors are right-handed or if something how that works, but I think that's the the norm. Um, and you know, Casey, I think Casey knows this, but her brothers, you know, probably would have been better. They were both uh, college athletes and and didn't think that was fair to them. But the reality is, um, you know, Casey may need another kidney at some point, and and hopefully one of those uh, two would would be willing to uh, step up at that that time. So it wasn't it was a it was a you know a serious decision. Well, I want to thank the two of you. This has been a great conversation. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I know we featured uh, Cystinosis Day earlier as an kind of a public service announcement for our through our podcast and we finally got to talk to you guys uh, I hope that uh, you know your next family uh, 
gathering with the Cystinosis Research Foundation is a great one, and I, I wish you all the best. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4.org on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. The SETD5 community is currently getting organized. We will let you know where you can donate soon. You can continue to follow Raghav and Everly stories next time on Raising Rare.